The moral of that story is if they'd read Poe, they would have known how to overcome it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. And the moral of that story is if they'd overcome, uh, if, if, take three. And the moral of that Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast, a shared imaginative space where readers and writers make meaning together. We're your hosts, Shannon and Gareth. Good morning, Shannon. Happy Good Friday. Have you? It is Good Friday. It's a great Friday. <laughs> it's a great Friday. Great day to talk about book banning and book burning, is it not? I mean, it's a little cool today over here. Uh, the temperature has dropped. Yeah. You know, I'd chuck a few books on the fire, warm myself up. Yeah. Well, I know Margaret Atwood um, in protest against book burning and book ban, she made an anti-inflammable book of The Handmaid's Tale so no one could ever destroy her masterpiece. Yes. And she's not the first to do this. Um, Isn't she? No. Well, I mean, okay. So it was, I don't know if it was Ray Bradbury's idea. We're going to talk about Ray Bradbury today, but Fahrenheit 451, there was a special edition that came wrapped in asbestos. Uh, Yeah. Breathe that in folks (laughs) and see where that gets you. Um, But yeah, it was wrapped in asbestos. (laughs) I don't. To like, you know, I don't know. Why would you do that? Because people who pick up your book are your readers. You don't want to be poisoning them. But unless you burn it, does it release asbestos particles? No, no. Um, Just breaking off the bits of it, creating the dust would be the issue. Uh, I don't think they really understood the dangers of asbestos at that point. But obviously it's highly um, resistant to flames. Uh, and so, yeah, it seemed like a good idea at the time. I guess it wasn't. Um, you know, I, I, I saw on a, on a TV show that um, cheese corn chips, the uh, powder on the cheese is a, a fire accelerant um, and is actually used in commercial accelerants. Uh, so delicious. Um, and I suppose <laughs> if you wanted to do a really, you know, a, a, a burnable book, you could like tape it to a packet of uh, cheese corn chips, you know, like everyone gets a free packet of cheese corn chips so they can burn that book up faster. That is not a bad idea. And now I'm just thinking, does this mean that, you know, the fire breathing performers, they eat Dorito chips before they do it, or they're definitely not allowed to because it burns up all their insides. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't want to have bits like stuck in your throat, would you? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The corn chips, this is a little life hack. If you are out camping, though, folks, uh, please understand that cheese corn chips burn at an extraordinary rate and you could start a, f- a fire that gets out of control. So regular chips, apparently, are also excellent fire lighters and they are much safer. But if it's a wet day, maybe try the cheese corn chips. So you learn stuff on podcasts, don't you? Yeah, and thanks yeah. to our sponsors. <laughs> CCs. Oh, my God, you said Doritos before. <laughs> oh, damn it. We failed at our first attempt. <laughs> Hopeless. Hopeless. So, yes, book burning. Have you, have you ever burnt a book, Shannon? 
No, I have not. I believe it to be sacrilege. Although I have, I have wanted to burn some books, uh, recommendations from friends that I was uh, foolish enough to engage in. Um, but, you know, that's another discussion for another day. <laughs> friends recommendations. Bad book recommendations. We'll, we'll add it to the list. Um, yeah. So we're going to, we're, we're actually going to have a list of, uh, we've both got various subjects we're going to talk about. Did you want to start? So the first book that I'm going to be talking about is The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. Yeah. So have you read this book before, Gareth? I have. Yes. I, I've got this one under my belt. It's not what you think. Um, I imagined he was a sinister character. Uh, you know, because people talk about Machiavellian characters and they're always really sinister. It's but interesting it's really that you say that because and, and, and basically how to get by in a courtly environment. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's interesting that you said that, you know, a Machiavellian character because uh, it's he, the naming of him is now one of the worst psychological traits a person can have, which is Machiavellianism. Uh, so uh, this book uh when it was released, uh, so a few of his friends had copies uh, back in 1513. He was released from his secretarial position within the Florence Republic when the Medici family retook over. And then he finally published, well, the book got published in 1532, five years after his death. But uh, a couple of years after its publication, it was banned by the Catholic Church and a few other places as well. Um, and, you know, it was even banned in the Elizabethan, Elizabethan England uh, and put on their banned lists until in, you know, in 1559. So, as you said, it's a book on diplomacy. It was presenting politics as being outside religious control influence and um, both churches believe Machiavelli's works fostered political and moral corruption. I think that it has, uh, you know, it's a precursor to various other books. Um, you know, I, I haven't read it, but The Art of Seduction is one that gets uh, tossed around quite a bit. Uh, and I think books that um, describe a sort of a, a strategic way of existing in a social space tends to, uh, fairly or unfairly, uh, be maligned as in some way exploitative. And what's also very interesting about that is you will typically find uh, that critics of said books haven't read them. Uh, so, so it is very much a perception thing. And I think that's where you could take the term uh, Machiavellian in, in the, it's something sinister that you really don't know anything about. Uh, I think that would be a much better framing of that term. Uh, something you imagine Mm -hmm. to be a threat without understanding its shape and context. Yeah. I mean, some, uh, critics have said that is more satirical rather than a rule book on diplomacy and how to um, get to power. Some of the quotes from the book is, you know, we still use them to this day. And are you familiar with any of these? It is better to be feared than loved if you cannot have both. And the ends justify the means. 
Yeah, I mean, and you know, they're interesting concepts. They're interesting things to discuss. Uh, the the whole yeah, the end justifies the means is a really interesting philosophical question. My instinct is to say no, that's not right. However, I mean, currently, I think you could say both of those statements could relate to the thinking of people on both sides of the so-called culture wars. Um, you know, I, I think that yeah, oh, great both point. of those things are very much built into that dynamic. And yeah, people might benefit from seeing what Machiavelli said about, you know, those quotes, like his, his deeper uh, thoughts on them, because it's easy to take a line out of context. Lucky country. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just want to mention this before uh, passing on to you. Uh, Machiavelli not only influenced many of the great statesmen of his age, but was also one of the founding fathers of modern political thought, with Machiavelli urging rulers of the state to direct their own destiny and not depend on what fate or chance brings. I mean, you know, that final line, Mm. it makes you question this why we would vilify this book. I mean, that line seems reasonable to me, not let fate or chance uh, decide your fate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think the critics of his book maybe had some agendas. You know, the Catholic Church possibly uh, wouldn't want to have too many people understanding how to wield and manage power. I mean, I could be wrong about that. Who's to say? Uh, and, you know, kings and queens worried about people developing an awareness of how to navigate power as opposed to having it given to you by birth. I mean, possibly they found that idea problematic. Who's to say? So, yeah, um, I mean, I, I would recommend The Prince. <laughs> I, I think it's a it's a really good book. Uh, I enjoyed reading yeah, it. Yeah, and it's quite a small volume as well, about 123 pages from memory. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's nice and slim, and the language is accessible. Um, and, and you know, I mean, I think uh, we we exist in contexts where there is a hierarchy often. So something like the prince can give you some insight into how to navigate your work situation, work politics, because there's a really uh, similar, you know, it is it is very much like a, a monarchy. Isn't it in a, in a company structure? It's not a democracy. The ultimate pyramid scheme. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, <laughs> um, I think it's a very worthwhile book, uh, but I can see why certain people might have wanted to ban it. Uh, so, we're, we're jumping mm. over to me now. My first book. Yes, we are. Okay. I'm looking forward to this. I know you've got a list of strange and interesting books. Yeah. So you're doing the like the bands that we would understand to be bands. And I, I've been either doing books that are were banned on strange terms or were not banned in a traditional sense. So the first one is Matilda uh, by Mary Shelley. So Mary Shelley wrote a lot as a, as a young woman. But she only ever completed two works, uh, obviously Frankenstein, which she rewrote, uh, what was that, 14 years after her original version was written um, in 1818. 
And the year after she wrote that original version, she wrote a novelette, not a a novella now, or a novel, but a novelette called Matilda. Um, Now, you can take from that that this is also a short read. It's under 20,000 words, a novelette. Um, But what's interesting about Matilda, well, actually, there's a lot of things that are interesting about Matilda, but (laughs) she... She wrote it in 1819. That's the best guess based on letters and such. Um, It was published for the first time in 1959, which means that for 140 years, this book did not see publication and was in a sense banned by Shelley's father, William Godwin. Uh, The the novelette is about uh, a trio of characters. Uh, There's uh, Matilda... Woodville uh, is a partner, um, and that character is very much an idealized Percy Shelley. And uh, and her father, in real life, there's very much a parallel to Matilda's father. The key point, of course, is that Matilda and her father have an incestuous relationship. So Shelley finished this book sent it to her actual father, who who tended to arrange publication for her. And he said, you know, I'm not into it, basically. Um, he said it, 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 it had its charms, but the subject matter was disgusting and detestable, quote. Um, so, yeah, he hung on to the manuscript. He didn't uh, return it. She only had one copy. She tried for some years to get get it back from him but he wouldn't he wouldn't have it and then um after they all died it passed uh, bits of the manuscript passed to do to different people so it was essentially scattered to the winds and it took a long time to get the permissions and so forth to put it all back together again so wow. that yeah we we have the the finished piece it should be said that it's highly unlikely that Mary and William Godwin were in an incestuous relationship. Uh, incest was a very popular theme at the time. Both Shelleys were extremely interested in in incest as as a, as a literary concept. Um, and there's incest in Frankenstein. Uh, it's it's not it's not a surprise. And, and in a sense, uh, you could argue that in Frankenstein. Uh, Victor Frankenstein is in some ways William Godwin and Mary Shelley is the monster uh, because he very much rejected his daughter, William Godwin, um, because she ran off with a poet, you know, as you do. And uh, and so they always had a very fractious relationship. But, yeah, this one was banned before it ever saw print. It was banned for 140 years. But we can read it now, and it's not as good as Frankenstein. Um, but but it is worth reading, and Shelley is a is a good writer. Yeah, have you read Matilda? I have only read little bits of it, and only for this podcast. I, I bought myself a copy a month or two ago. I just saw it on the shelf and went, "Oh my, I'll grab this." Didn't know what it was. Um, I think a lot of people sort of think of Shelley, uh, Shelley Mary Shelley, as having only ever really written the one work. Um, we also yeah. have in uh, editions of Matilda 
Um, there are also copies of the first draft, the one that she actually hung on to, um, called Fields of Fancy, I believe. Fields of Fancy. Um, and that was the first draft. So you can see the corrections she made, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. 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 Oh, that is interesting. So, yeah, Matilda, mm. that's my first entry into the banned books list. I don't yeah. think it's been banned so, subsequently. That's good. Well, over to me. Uh, the second one is The Call of the Wild by Jack London. So this book was banned in Italy in 1929, Yugoslavia the same year, and burnt in the Nazi bonfires in 1933. Published in 1903, it follows the story of Buck, a domestic dog who was kidnapped from his home in California and forced to pull sleds in the Arctic wasteland. And I think there's two reasons uh, this book was banned. Uh, so in Europe, and the reason for that is there are a few, there's a common pattern within Call of the Wild, and that is related to fighting back. And there's a couple of scenes that I'm going to talk through. So uh, Buck's attack in Seattle on a stout man with a red sweater who threatens him with a hatchet and club. Then uh, Buck has a rivalry with Spitz for the lead of the sled dog team and his eventual victory and deadly overthrow of the lead dog. His attack on the Yee Huts in revenge for their murder of John Thornton and his eventual life with the wolves as a free dog. And so for a sled dog, life in the Yukon means fighting for your position, sometimes your life, and it's a, a rule. So as per the law of club and fang, which is a cool concept. And um, so Buck quickly learns that he needs to protect himself if he wants to survive. And I think in a sense, Buck symbolizes the author himself. Uh, he even wrote in his essay, How I Became a Socialist, I was a rampant individualist. It was very natural. I was a winner. Uh, so during its banning times in Europe, uh, totalitarian regimes were coming into power and the messages of individualism within this book can be argued to be terrifying for those in power. Uh, Mussolini was rising power in Italy during this time and Alexander I in Yugoslavia as well. And then, of course, we had Hitler in Germany with the Nazi bonfires. The call of wild could inspire revolution and was so and so was dismissed as too radical back then and with it ban and its banning was a natural extension. So that was like the the face of Europe at the time. Again, the totalitarian regimes coming in and uh, over back into the um, the West in the US. The reasons that they wanted it banned was. Uh, it was said that the book carried a tone of darkness, exploring mature themes of cruelty and violence, despite sometimes being misconstrued as a children's book because the main character was a dog. Mm. Um, furthermore, the real-life atrocities committed against the native tribes in the name of Manifest Destiny were thought of as just and honourable in the wake of the Great Indian Wars that wiped out the cultures across the United States. This point of contention ex is explored in the tribe that takes in Buck, the Yeehats, and this tribe is entirely of London's creation, but some groups felt that the negative lights he sheds on the Yeehats is a slam against all native tribes within the U.S., so that was a lot of the um, the calls for banning this book in America. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting how books can have, you know, wildly different critics or with wildly different criticisms. Oh, yeah, very two different reasons, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of 
Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling, and the various bands that have been going on with her works since it was first published. Uh, the critics yeah. are all over the political spectrum and have all kinds of issues with the book. Yeah, you can't please anyone any of the time. I think that's the message of that one. Um, so London was an individualist and then he became a socialist. Yes, correct. Mm, interesting. I've never really understood the contradiction between those two things. I, like I would consider myself, here's a little bit of behind-the-scenes info, I would <laughs> consider myself a socialist libertarian. Uh, this has been explained to me to be a unicorn position, but I actually don't think it is. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting. Like I've had some really interesting discussions with people uh, around politics and around political identity. It's one of those things where, you know, politics, sex politics and religion, you don't discuss them at the dinner table. And apparently it's also not that great to discuss them in literature. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, because we've all made up our minds and there's nothing more to say. And yet we all seem to have different points of view. It's very interesting. And I think I, I had a particular order that I was going to do these in, but you've, you've changed my mind. I'm going to be flexible. Oh, apologies. Oh, dear. Well, you know, I think flexibility is the way we get out of this, right? <laughs> I think it is. Yes. Yes. And I, I just wish I had like more dexterous fingers so I wasn't struggling so much with my paper. But here's my next one. Can we see that? Yes, we can. So brown bear, brown bear. What do you see by you Bill see? Martin Jr. By, by Bill Martin Jr. This uh, this book was also illustrated by Eric Carl, who we've mentioned before, as uh, the hungry little caterpillar was a key book in my reading history, very early one. So he also illustrated this one. Beautiful book, Bill Martin Jr. Oh, that's why the image looks so beautiful. Actually, it does look very familiar and same style. Yeah, I mean, I'll just I'll pop it up one more time. Excuse my shaky hands. I'm doing my best here. There we are. It looks yeah, very colors. much like it's a cutout, like he's taken, yeah, he, he's cut out images and put them together and may very well be what he's done. Bill Martin Jr., he's written a lot of books. Uh, he, I think one of them was about how to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Very controversial figure, as you can imagine. It's 300 kids' books. Um, but he was banned. Uh, what year was he banned? Let's see if I can find this quickly. No, I can't, but let's not worry about that. He was banned relatively recently. Um, I think it was about 2008, somewhere in that area. Uh, this was after he'd passed away. He passed away in the early 2000s, around 2003, 2004, I believe. Um, yeah. yes, but he was banned so 20 basically. Years ago now. Yeah. He was banned, uh, you know, for basically being a danger to young children's minds with his um, Marxist views. And the reason this occurred is because an academic uh, in America wrote a book called Ethical Marxism, Ethical Marxism by Bill Martin. 
you would think that's a fairly uh, reasonable thing for an academic to do. Talk about Marxism, you know, academics do those sorts of things. So Bill Martin wrote Ethical yeah. Marxism, uh, but Bill Martin is not related in any way to Bill Martin Jr. Uh, so essentially, uh, I've got a little quote for you. This is from the Fort Worth Star-Telegraph. Quote, in its haste to sort out the state's social studies curriculum standards this month, the State Board of Education tossed children's author Martin, who died in 2004, from a proposal for the third grade section. Board member Pat Hardy, R. Weatherford, who made the motion, cited books he had written for adults that contain, quote, very strong critiques of capitalism and the American system. The trouble is, the Bill Martin Jr. who wrote the Brown Bear series never wrote anything political. The book on Marxism was written by Bill Martin, a philosophy professor at DePaul University in Chicago. So essentially, they confused two people and banned all of Bill Martin Jr.'s books. Uh, and I, it, isn't that an amazing example of what a blunt instrument book banning is that they can't even get the right authors <laughs> yeah so i and assume so ethical marxism was still retracted? on the reading list oh yeah yeah i mean they were all very embarrassed they should also be embarrassed even even if bill martin and bill martin jr were the same person context is important i mean you know you don't ban a book like brown bear brown bear what do you see out of hand, like, you know, maybe have a look at it, uh, see what it's about. And, you know, it's not a long book. And I realize that some people aren't big readers, but it is a very short book. It's about 28 pages. Uh, it's a picture book. Uh, so it doesn't have many words. You're a little bit facetious there, Gareth. <laughs> I'm being, a, I'm being a, ta a tad bitchy. I know I am, but it, it's, it's such an outrageous thing to have done. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it really shows how banning books is a very broad. Yeah, you're bringing a you're bringing a mallet to a scalpel fight. That's 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 a terrible, mm. terrible attempt at something. But yes, it's it, it's a great illustration that book bans are kind of uh, lacking in precision and nuance. Yeah. And um, you did send me a really interesting article about a dystopian novel, which ended up having a dystopian outcome uh, even before it was published. I think it's called The Men, and I can't get the author off the top of my head, but the Sandra article Newman. was brilliantly written. Sandra Newman. And mm. um, I don't, we're not going to go into her detail today because I think we want to talk about it next week. But the concept that the, um, the article writer finished on was just read the books, <laughs> read the books, because I think we, there's a, a bit of hysteria around even just the story behind the story. And I think uh, the whale came out by Brandon Fraser. I think he was the main actor. And there was like a whole bunch of hysteria over that as well. People hadn't even seen the movie and we're seeing that in the literary space as well. People have not even read these books, making assumptions and follow along in this um mob mentality of this book is bad yeah and should be um, banned i mean identity politics is is a really difficult space and you know lived experience has really been ignored for a tremendously long time um what is what is now occurring 
is a kind of a savage course correction where lived experience is being privileged over all kinds of other experience. Uh, and inevitably, when you take such a narrow focus on anything, you run into problems. And this is what seems to be occurring as far as I can see. It's a, it is a very nuanced thing, though. Uh, you know, I, I can kind of relate at some of the time to what all sides are saying. But I think, yeah, with, with Sandra Newman's The Men, uh, which we will talk about next week, but conceptually, I think it's impossible. I really do. I think it's impossible to suggest that there is a problem with its basic concept and setup. And I'll make that argument more completely next week. But it is interesting how often um, people become incredibly alarmed by something before they've actually experienced it. Uh, and, you know, that is a very dangerous, dangerous position to be in, to fear, to fear the unknown in, in, in such a way. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go, you're also forcing me out of um, my order that I had. So, and this is one you've wanted to talk about and you're really excited about it being on a classical uh, books band list, The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall. So this was a fantastic book, yeah. Published in 1928, it was considered is considered a landmark work of LGBTQ literature. However, it was also the subject of significant controversy and censorship when it was first published. The book's frank portrayal of lesbianism and its sympathetic portrayal of a lesbian protagonist were deemed too scandalous for the time, leading to its banning and censorship for many years. Uh, a British magistrate, Sir Chartres Byron, found The Well of Loneliness to be obscene and ruled that the novel should be taken out of circulation and destroyed. And the then Sunday Express editor, James Douglas, began a campaign in August 1928 to have Hall's book banned, naming The Well of Loneliness as the book that should be suppressed. Before James Douglas began his campaign to ban The Well of Loneliness, Richard King, writing for society magazine The Tatler in August 1928, gave his own review of the book, aware of the book's controversial subject matter, but also its worthiness as a piece of art. And this is what he had to say, quote, Should I praise it that I can literally hear the huge army of the narrow-minded hinting that I am in sympathy with its publication? Should, on the other hand, I dismiss it as a novel written on a subject which is unmentionable, then I should condemn a work of considerable art, a story which is poignantly tragic to a degree, one of the few books I've ever read which illustrates the pitiful loneliness of sexual perversity as it is. Considered objectively, then, it is a very poignant plea for justice towards unfortunate intermediate sex. Considered subjectively, you will either be interested by it or peradventure it will make you too furious and disgusted to do more than throw the book in the fire. We will leave it at that. So, I mean, wow. it would have been hard, I think, to review the book at that time, but I, you know, he was open to viewing its worthiness as a piece of literature as opposed to its actual subject matter, which is amazing. So he talks about sexual perversity. Now, I, I think one of the differences between the 20s of the 20th century and the 20s of the 21st century is that people would get very hung up on his choice of the word perversity. Obviously, one wouldn't yeah. use that word these days. However, 
you know, uh, I, I think that the message there is extremely sympathetic uh, and positive in a guarded kind of way. There would have been in- incredible difficulties had he championed the book. And, you know, no one is obligated to do so. Um, but I think to the extent that he gave that a really genuinely positive review, uh, you know, he, he made a, a significant contribution uh, to its reception. Uh, but, yeah, I, I do yeah. wonder if if that was reframed in today's terms, whether the overall message would be lost by the choice of one careless word. Yeah. Um, where I pulled this from, uh, the article even mentioned that, you know, hearing when we talk, hearing that word sexual perversity, it's hard. And I mean, I think the point here is to, you know, we're in the 21st century, century. We need to keep in mind that back then the language was different. The thoughts were different. Um, you can't, uh, you know, using a mallet to kind of remove that history. It's really important to acknowledge that over time we've shifted in our views and opinions on a lot of topics and they shouldn't just be banned altogether. Yeah, exactly. And also perversion, you know, is, is a shifting or warping from the normal or the natural. In, in terms of understandings at the time, it was the correct word to use. It's yeah. our, our concept of of what is normal has has shifted uh and so understanding that it was much more rigid and that it is more sophisticated now this is a good thing this guy was working within that system making a small step towards what we have now become uh and yeah i i i think that that people when dealing with older works need to look at the work as more of an overall piece and and its intent and and its cultural context because i mean if you're willing to do those things there's enormous merit in in many works that are otherwise considered to be outdated in their views i think most of the time the criticisms are much more about being outdated in their language yeah um, and just to wrap up and finish on Radcliffe, um, she was continued. She continued to face censorship and persecution throughout her life, as her work was deemed too scandalous and controversial for many readers and critics of the time. She died in 1943 and didn't see, did not live to see the day the ban in England was finally lifted and republished in 1959. So, from its first mm-hmm. publication, 1928, banned until 1959. The ban was finally lifted. What's you know, going on with 1959? That's also when Matilda came out. That was a racy year. I think we should Actually, do the yeah, books so of 1959. England, something was going on. <laughs> in the water. I'm pretty sure 1960s in England they had a whole rehaul of their um, the way they were dealing with books and censorship and banning. So that might be the reason, but that's just off the top of my head. Don't fact check me. <laughs> no, no, that's that's interesting. And I would like us to do an episode on Radcliffe Hall because Radcliffe Hall, Virago Classics writer now, we've talked about Virago Classics, she um, yeah. has been in many ways exercised from literary history. Uh, so I think it would be great mm. 
for us to maybe do a review of a couple of her books or something. And uh, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, and we mentioned her in our Women's Work podcast. Yeah, but I mean, many well, not many. Some of the other writers in the Virago Classics uh, collection have fared better um, over the years than Radcliffe Hall, who really hasn't fared very well at all. So it'd be good to to give her a big shout out. I think. Yeah. So 1960s, 100%. you say there was a bit of progress in England. What about um? What about all you know, Australia? Good old Australia. How were we going in the nineteen sixties? Australia. We we're a pretty progressive country, right? We were nailing it. Yeah. Um, let's reframe that word "progressive," and well, you go the complete opposite there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I did not know this until you raised it to my attention. But actually, during most of the twentieth century, Australia was one of the strictest censors in the Western world, which you know was bizarre to me to hear. Um, so we actually have a long and unsettling history of literary censorship and a tradition of prohibiting books which preceded Federation and continued up until 1970s. So, you know, you mentioned 1959 being a big year for some of these books coming out. We didn't have the same um, advantage until the 1970s. Gosh. It is really interesting. So even books that were considered suitable reading in England, Europe and America were frequently banned in Australia. And they, the Australian government can do this at two levels, at the federal level and the state level. So at the federal level, Australia actually had the Commonwealth Customs Department who had the authority to prohibit imports under the Customs Act of 1901. And they kept a reference library of around 15,000 books, magazines and comics banned in Australia between the 1920s and the 1970s. And at the state level, governments gave police the power to seize books from stores and burn them. Oh, wow. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem too different from Germany back in the time, does it? No, it doesn't. And uh, the reasoning for that was all with the imperative of protecting, again, that word protecting, the moral virtue of society and safeguard the dominance of white Anglo-Saxon Christian culture. Um, again, but in most cases, the content of... Um, primary objection was the sexual nature of books and with any references to homosexuality, abortion, masturbation and obscene language considered particularly egregious. Wouldn't it be fun to go to one of these archives? I mean, it's the mother load, isn't it? Like, like of, I, I am aware that um, certain materials, uh, that sounds really dodgy, doesn't it? I, I, I like, for example, um, episodes, classic episodes of Doctor Who from the 1960s, black and white ones. Um, Australia has been a great source for clips that were removed from the episodes before they were broadcast. Um, and they only exist oh, really? now because censors clipped them off and chucked them in a, in a drawer. Uh, and then, of course, those episodes were lost in their entirety, but they were able to find these clips in uh, censorship archives. Uh, so they, they do have some use, um, but it would be fun to actually go to one of these. Like, I, I'd love to go to a censorship library and, and you know, see all the wild and wacky things that got censored. I think they should get moving yeah. on that in Canberra. They should definitely build one. And we will come. 
They have built one in Canberra. Is it a public library for, like, I, I, I thought it was more like uh, an archive that was not necessarily accessible. Uh, they had an exhibition in Canberra back roughly um, 2012, I think the exhibition was, where they covered a lot of the titles and this information around what was uh, banned. Um, but I do have a few book examples, mm-hmm. and I'm going to also ask you if you've read these books. All right. Uh, so first published in 1951, J.D. Salinger's classic novel Catcher in the Rye about adolescent angst had been freely circulating in Australia for some years when a clerk of the Customs Literary Censorship Section, so we actually even had a literary censorship section wow. back then, seized an important copy for review. So he described it as extremely readable and punctuated with humour, pathos and wise commentaries on our society, but the clerk felt the novel contained enough indecent references to be considered a prohibited import. Okay. Well, um, I ain't so no with, phony. I've read that yeah. book. Uh, <laughs> it, and would you agree with his statement? No. I mean, well, yes, it was a very entertaining book and it, it had a lot of really interesting insights. I don't remember it being especially unsettling and, and or, or provocative. You know, I don't know what, maybe my standards are off. Um, but I, I don't even recall it having particularly provocative material in it. Uh, I mean, it has some notoriety in, in that the, uh, the individual who shot John Lennon was very influenced by it and was carrying a copy during his, uh, his yeah. murder. Um, but Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, it got a bit of notoriety from that. But no, I mean, um, I think it's a book. I, it's a book I would recommend to people. I, I, I very much recall enjoying it and being very struck. Uh, yeah, this concept of phonies is a really big, big part of that story. And, uh, and it, yeah, it's interesting. I think it would really, um, particularly to the sort of uh, the the section of society that lives more online. Uh, now, what's the character's name? Holden Caulfield, I think. Um, he would be online. You know, he'd be he'd be on Discord. I think were were he a real person alive today. Uh, but yes, no, I would totally recommend that to people. Definitely don't ban that one. Yeah. Um, and so interestingly, uh, the customs department could ban uh, books based on three pieces of legislation. I'm not going to mention the names, but uh, they could ban for blasphemous, indecent or, or obscene works. They could ban for literature unduly emphasising matters of sex or crime or calculated to encourage depravity, depravity or they could ban seditious publications. And typically when a clerk wanted to ban a work, they had to refer it to the Literary Censorship Board, but this guy did not. And he just decided off his own moral backbone that this was a bad book and it was banned. And then the Customs Department added the novel to the list of banned books on the 21st of August, 1956. Then... In September 1957, it was revealed that a copy of the novel donated by the United States ambassador as an example of his country's literature had been removed from the parliamentary library. You know, that's starting to sound a bit, you know, 1984 there. That's awkward, isn't uh, it? And yeah. then why, 
It is very awkward. And then widespread protests in the press declared the ban a national embarrassment and criticised the censorship regime. The Literary Censorship Board reviewed the novel in October and had no hesitation in recommending release. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with them. Like, I, I really can't imagine what the controversy was. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess this is why you don't leave it up to one person of, of dubious taste to make these decisions for yeah. the rest of us. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Um, yeah. And I was reading a pen article. So Penn is the group uh, who are against censorship and uh, banning of books in America. And it was saying that, you know, it used to be uh, individuals or parents of children that would put forward a suggested ban for a book, but it's no longer individuals and their dubious taste anymore. It's now a whole committed, organized group of people that are putting these bans on a lot of books, uh, especially in America, um, which is interesting. There seems to be a collective now. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Help me out, guy. A collective uh, motive? Yeah, a collective motive with the sole purpose of banning books, and I doubt that these groups have even read these books. And with online power and presence, they have been able to I think reach a critical mass that they are actually making a huge impact on the amount of books that are getting banned. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, with all this polarization that has occurred over the last, I guess, it probably began about 30 years ago, didn't it? Um, one of the problems is that concepts start being owned by particular groups uh, you know, like like the concept of free speech tends to, I mean, the free speech was very much uh, a a slogan of the left, um, and and really, you know, it it was built around the very obvious uh, disproportion of power and influence that occurs in in capitalist societies. You know, the the rich do have louder voices uh and so you'd you'd find collectives of of less uh less audible voices all shouting together you know that was very much a a thing and it's it's certainly i mean i see the value in it however um it really has i think the concept of free speech is very much situated over on the right of the spectrum now and what's interesting about that, uh, you know, in both legitimate and less legitimate ways, but what's interesting about that, I think, is that there seems to be something of an opposition to free speech on the left now. Um, you know, concepts like uh, all opinions are not equal. Um, I, I just find that a scandalous statement um, because, you know, I mean, an opinion is an opinion. I really think they are absolutely all equal and possibly all worthless, uh, you know, because basically what what gives something value surely uh, are facts. Uh, you know, an opinion starts to mean something when it's based on something, and that's where debate and uh, exposure to different points of view and materials and information is useful and we we seem to have entered into a very strange space 
uh, the current time, and I guess this explains why book bans are exploding, where people are afraid of other people having any platform to speak and do not like to interrogate their own uh, opinions, which, uh, you know, I, I'm quite comfortable with my set of opinions, like most people. I, uh, I, I don't know about you, but I, I like to think that most of my opinions are reasonably well informed. However, I, I frequently discover they're not. And, uh, you know, I think that's a good thing. It's growth, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I think when opinions become wrapped up in identity, that's when it gets dangerous because if you change your opinion, you now have to change something that's so inherent to you or what you thought you were, which is your identity. Um, that's all I have to say on that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's like you have to wear a special T-shirt to show which side you're on. Um, and mm. I just don't think people are this simple. Uh, I think we're far more sophisticated and our views don't all align into boxes where people can just be placed. It does feel uh, like a very alarming thing. And I think literature is one of the areas in which our movement towards this or away from it will be decided. And I think as we're going to talk about next week, uh, back to this week, other Australian uh, I actually books. have a great letter um, yes, I am going to get to that, but I put up a letter doing this research and I just love this letter because we were talking about, you know, actually reading these books before you decide. So this letter was in response, uh, sent by a publisher, uh, in response to the banning of The Catcher in the Rye. And I'll just read it out to you guys. Referring to the notice of seizure of a copy of The Catcher in the Rye received from you by registered post a few days ago, I would like to appeal against the decision to prohibit the importation of this book into Australia. When the publishers of the book learned of the prohibition, they were astounded at the decision and asked me to lodge an appeal against it on their behalf. The author is very highly regarded in literary circles in America and England, and though this book and though his books have had a comparatively small sale in this country, the demand comes from literary quarters and not from those usually seeking pornographic reading matter. The fact that the book has been in circulation here for about five years without arousing any non-literary interest shows that its pornographic appeal, if any, has not been commercialised. I haven't read it. Yours faithfully. <laughs> um I just think it's great that he's even acknowledged, look, I, I think this, but I haven't read it, just putting it out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, but it is an evidence-based letter, isn't it? Like, um, mm. this person has, has done a bit of their due diligence and actually has a position on it based on some kind of empirical data. It's always nice to see. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so the scandal of the banning of the catcher in the rye provoked from the first major review of Customs Censorship Administration to ensure all literary works would be forwarded to the Literary Censorship Board from then on because, again, the clerk just decided, I don't like this book and banned it. And other titles um, under scrutiny by Customs, one of the most provocative and radical novels of the 20th century, first published in 1959, that's that year again, The Naked Lunch, by William Burroughs, which provides a fractured account of American homosexual and drug cultures in the 1950s, was banned as hardcore 
pornography by customs after an imported copy was seized at Port Adelaide in February 1960. After applications for its release by the members of the public in 1963 and 1967, the National Literary Board of Review on both occasions unanimously agreed to retain the ban. Goodness. Now, have you read The Naked Lunch? Yes, The Naked Lunch. Yes, I have read The Naked Lunch. It's trippy. Would you say it's hard corn pornography? No. No, I really wouldn't. Um <laughs> Again, though, I mean, you got to you got to put it into the context of the time. Uh, I think that what yeah. we consider to be hardcore pornography now uh, is very different to what we thought hardcore pornography was even twenty years ago. Uh, yeah, we've we've sort of the dial has moved. Um, no, it's a, it's yeah. a very and I it's a very good book, The Naked Lunch. Uh, it's his mm. signature book, and yeah, you know, yeah. it's. Um, it's it's pretty weird. Uh, I think it got very much picked up um, by the sort of psychedelics in in the late sixties. People were kind of really into the naked lunch, uh, you know, and and woofing this and chuffing that. And yeah, I I, I think it's a book. I mean, the the you know the stuff like uh, on the road by uh, Jack Kerouac and 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 books like that uh, perhaps get slightly more attention. In, in terms of that period of literature, but I, but I really think The Naked Lunch was one of the the really, really groundbreaking books of the 1950s. So, yeah, no, again, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I endorse it. Yeah. And, okay, that's good. And I think that, you know, book bannings have been continuing for ages, and but the reasons behind the banning have changed. Um, but to ban a book now on uh, – sexual material seems so bizarre seeing as we have instant online access to free porn for uh any person that's on the internet and so yeah just some of these book bannings potentially would not happen you would think but it's still happening in america for sexual materials which are inappropriate for children apparently um so again that protective piece comes into it uh still on this day in terms of yeah, book bannings. Anyway, I'm going to continue on Australia's journey. James Baldwin's provocative novel, Another Country, which explores interracial relationships in the United States in the mid-1950s, quickly became a bestseller after it was published in 1962. In August that year, Customs seized an imported copy of the book for examination and without the advice of the Literary Censorship Board, again, deemed it a, a prohibited import six months later. The Literary Censorship Board reported on the novel in May 1963. Although they agreed the author was one of America's leading writers, his novel was continually smeared with indecent, offensive and dirty epithets and allusions. However, the board believed that Baldwin had a message and a reasoned point of view on race relations. It recommended the novel not be banned completely, but made available to the serious-minded student or reader. Another country was removed from the prohibited list following intense pressure and a review of banned titles in 1966. So still, 1966, Australia is um, quite heavily censoring a lot of literary works coming into the country. Yes. And, yeah, Another Country mm-hmm. is one of those books you really need to read before you die. It's on that, on that list. I'm going to just be honest. I haven't read it. I've always meant to read it. I've got a copy on my shelf. Uh, 
and God knows I could probably like fake my way through it, but I'm not going to, uh, because yeah, that is, <laughs> that is a book I should have read by now. And it's, uh, and, and not, not, um, not for political reasons. James Baldwin, I am familiar with some of his other work and his, uh, his writing style is, is beautiful. Um, so, you know, I, it's, it's fun to talk about politics here, but, but our focus is literature and, and, and purely on literary terms. Uh, yeah, another country is one of those must read books that most people who've read it would agree was very profound and powerful. Uh, so yeah. Okay. Well, I'll let you off the hook. Have you read Portney's Complaint? Yes. That's the I next have. book I want to talk about. I have. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that had some sexual content in it. That certainly did. Um, I read that as a teenager, late teenager. Uh, and I enjoyed it yeah. very much. Okay. <laughs> The sexual content or the writing or? Oh, both. Um, Philip Roth has a, has a really difficult reputation now. Um, you know, he's passed away, but uh, he's one of those writers that I think, you know, people get a little too involved in authorial readings and ouvoirs representing a kind of a, a skeletal framework of the person themselves and and then confusing the artist with their work, all that kind of stuff. Philip Roth's in that space now. Um, but I think, I mean, I've read a couple of his books, or three or four actually, but um, for me, Portnoy's complaint was the one that stood out. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know because pushes to liberalise the censorship system gained momentum and reached a climax in the early 1970s with Philip Roth's best-selling novel, Portney's Complaint, which shocked and amused readers following the life of a young American man struggling with his sexuality and Orthodox Jewish upbringing and declared a prohibited import in Australia four months after its publication in 1969. The National Literary Board of Review recommended prohibition as the novel exceeds the standards acceptable in the community today. Now, what happened next? I did not know about this, so thank you for sharing the article. It goes back to, you know, we need a fight for freedom of the literary world and works that we have. So this is the story. Risking fines and imprisonment, three men from Penguin Books, managing director John Mitchie, finance director Peter Froelich, and editor John Hooker resolved to smuggle copies of Portney's complaint into Australia and publish them. The men believed the book to be of profound literary merit and the censorship system nonsensical and outdated. In July 1970, after successfully smuggling copies of Portney's complaint into Australia, Penguin was able to print 75,000 copies in Sydney and ship them to wholesalers and bookstores around the country. Eager readers stormed bookstores to get their hands on the converted and illicit novel that had taken the world by storm. The police quickly descended, court summons were delivered to Penguin Books, and politicians insisted that they would be held to pay. (laughs) 
The prosecutor, Leonard Flanagan, denounced the novel in striking terms. When taken as a whole, it is lewd, he declared. As to a large part of it, it is absolutely disgusting, both in the sexual and other sense, and the content of the book as a whole offends against the ordinary standards of the average person in the community today, the ordinary average person's standard of decency. <laughs> Ultimately, <laughs> Ultimately, Penwood Books was only convicted of breaching censorship laws in Victoria and fined $104.50. The Whitlam government eventually dismantled the censorship system and introduced a classification code in its place. And now this novel was the last work of fiction taken to court in Australia. And we finally had the dismantling of our censorship board. Fantastic. Yeah. Um mm. Penguin, eh? That was a, that was a brave yeah. and principled stance from them. We'll, uh, next week we'll talk about whether they're managing to continue that tradition. Um, yeah, that's really inspiring, isn't it? I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it should be, it sh- it should be fiery. All right. Ha ha. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's really inspiring, isn't it? When people fight for literature and, and, and the freedom of ideas, I, I didn't know the particulars of that, but it, yeah, it's, it, it really fires you up and makes you want to uh, fight for literature. Don't take my books away, yeah. you fascists or whatever. Yeah. And this was going to be a slogan on one of our TVs, uh, our TVs on our T-shirts. Um, art shouldn't need to be defended. Art shouldn't need to be defended. Yeah. Yeah. I very much agree with that. Although I guess it depends uh, who you're defending it against, which leads me very neatly to the character of Rosemary Tonks. Rosemary Tonks. Rosemary Tonks was a British writer. I think to a certain extent uh, she's fallen out of the collective consciousness. This is in some, in some respects or most respects uh, her doing um, so she wrote uh, two collections, I think it was, or maybe more, uh, of poetry um, and a number of novels, one of which is called The Bloater. The Bloater is very interesting to me. Uh, uh, so it was published in 1968. Um and it deals with uh, sexual re- relations between uh, married people and others. And uh, Rosemary Tonks also, uh, she collaborated with a woman called uh, Delia Derbyshire, who uh, we're doing a whole Doctor Who thing today, uh, actually wrote the Doctor Who theme music, which is very iconic. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and she put it together out of, you know, like this was a process of stitching bits of cut tape together to create different sounds. And she was using electronic instruments, which at the time in 1963, when she uh, composed the theme music, uh, you know, was a was a pretty um, new and interesting thing. Uh, the BBC had a particular department for electronic music and new sounds. Uh, so they were friends, Tonks and, and Derbyshire. And Derbyshire is possibly or most likely to be the inspiration of one of the characters in The Bloater. Uh, so it's a very kind of autobiographical work in, in some ways. 
Um, so this is this is a writer that by the age of forty, she was a very well respected poet who'd been published multiple times, had novels coming out. It was all you know going very well, and I think you know we would know who she was had she not had a series of health issues, a marriage breakdown. Uh, she lost her eyesight for a while because she was practicing a particular kind of spirituality, which um, recommended you stare at blank walls for hours at a time and also do various cross-eyed wow. exercises. And she she detached her retinas. Um, she had a whole bunch oh of, of these issues. It just basically, you know, it all went downhill. She was having a terrible 1970s, basically. Uh, yeah. And she... She found spirituality. I don't know if she really found God in the traditional sense. She seemed to have mixed views about it. But but she did read the Bible and she did consider her previous work to be uh, blasphemous, I guess, or, or, or certainly didn't want to be associated with it. A bit like uh, Betty Page yeah. over in America, uh, the pinup model Betty Page uh, came to – have a difficult relationship with her previous work. Um, Rosemary Tonks was much more sure that her work needed not to exist. So she refused to have it reissued. She, she said, basically, you cannot publish my work again. I refuse. Um, and apparently, and I, I find this a very striking image, she would go around <clears throat> to public libraries and, uh, take out copies of her books and then go home and burn them. So she was burning her own books, folks, uh, which, which is a rather striking idea, isn't it? So, you know, and again, you know, I don't, I don't, I really don't buy into the concept that uh, creatives and what they create are the same thing uh, or that authorial yeah. readings should be privileged. On, on some level. And I think Rosemary Tonks is a good example of why those ideas don't make sense. The, the, the later Tonks, Tonks is an older woman, uh, completely rejected the work she wrote as a younger woman. Who is correct? Uh, you know, you don't even have to make a decision around that, 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 that there is this schism suggests that, you know, we've got to be careful about how we think of authors and texts and how closely related they are and also how they represent their views um, because often writers will deal with ideas in a way that doesn't necessarily represent their views, at least on a surface level. Yeah. Um, so, yes, she she had a very difficult life. Um she became known as Mrs. Lightband, Mrs. Lightband. So you can imagine, you know, she's living in this little um, little house, uh, where is it, in Bournemouth, um, and she would go to Hyde Park and hand out Bibles. However, she did express um, some reservations around around Christianity. So I'm not quite sure if she ever truly became a Christian or, in a sense, maybe found um, a place within its doctrine and practices. I, I, my, my sense is that it might have been a little bit more that. Um, but, yeah, 
she she was very much uh, a swinging sixties L- London personality in the sixties, and yeah. by nineteen eighty, she was a completely <laughs> different person. And I think that's um, pretty pretty amazing stuff. But yeah, so this is a writer who tried to ban herself, Rosemary Tonks. You ever done that? You ever burnt anything you wrote? Like destroyed it? So I said, I don't, I don't want to be associated with this. Um, I wish I could burn it. I remember this is, you know, uh, for our viewers, um, a boy that I was really, I was dating and I was interested in broke up with me over text and I was very mad. And I met a boy that night that I happened and he was a helicopter pilot and I felt the need to write this in a letter to this dump dumper I've already met someone else we're going on a helicopter ride you suck was pretty much the gist of the letter and I posted it to his address and I wish I could burn that letter <laughs> younger version of Shannon oh. older version of Shannon regrets younger Shannon's um yeah yeah you got to wonder haven't you I used to write letters where are they now did you ever send them yeah no I sent them too yeah you know and god knows they're probably all gone now hopefully um you know Kafka also wanted all of his works but he wasn't published in his lifetime Kafka um and yeah I remember you saying mm, I think his friend and I believe literary agent Bron what was his first name can't remember we weren't including him in this episode so why am I bringing him now but but basically yeah he decided not to burn the works which was Kafka's sort of last dying wish and you know I guess the uh whether or not he was a good friend or not is debatable, but, you know, bless him, uh, because Kafka is an incredibly important writer, a real central figure in surrealism. Uh, God knows what we would have got had he not existed. We did the review of um, Secret Rendezvous. Kobe That book wouldn't have existed without Kafka. So it's he, he certainly mm. made some significant contributions. And Proust, too. Proust didn't burn his works, but he burnt his notes. And it would have been really interesting. Ah, oh, yes. It would have been really interesting yeah. to read those notes and see how he had outlined things and then look at the finished books. Uh, that that's a, that's a bit of a shame. Mm, it is. Um, and I reckon a lot of people would have wanted to burn this book, and I think this might be the last one I want to bring up. Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. Arguably the most controversial novel of the 20th century, Lolita explores the relationship between an unsettling yet intelligent pedophile and his young nymphet as their lives become increasingly intertwined over the span of five years. This storyline is extremely unconventional, bizarre, and downright sickening, but at the same time, the words written by Vladimir Nabokov are rendered in the beautiful and elegant prose. Forbidden love and the desire for objects one cannot have fuel this passionate but ultimately one-sided love story. The main character, Humbert Humbert, is a scholar from Europe who develops a fetish for young girls after his childhood love, Annabelle Lee, dies suddenly before the two can consummate their love. Consequently, Humbert is obsessed with finding young, honey-skinned girls with soft down on their arms in order to fulfill his primal desires. The sentence of the book sums up Humbert's instant love affair with this girl of 12, Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul. 
so the story behind this book, uh, when he finished uh, it in 1953, he struggled to find a publisher in the US due to the book's uh, theme of pedophilia and it was rejected by all the big houses, including Viking, where the editor Pasco Covici said, Anyone who published it risked being jailed or fined. Nabokov then had to go to the French firm Olympia Press, uh, which was a firm better known for publishing pornographic pulp. Uh, But on its launch in 1955, France became the first in a line of countries to ban Lolita, followed by Argentina, New Zealand, South Africa and Australia, where censors kept it out of the country until 1965. A heated debate in Westminster saw all copies seized by customs until 1959 when it was finally published in the UK. But so strong was the condemnation that its publisher, the Conservative MP Nigel Nicholson, was forced to step down from his post. Uh, So Lolita was banned in France from 1956-1959, Although Prescott wrote in the New York Times that these acts of censorship actually led to its American publication being preceded by a fanfare of publicity, Prescott noted, Mr. Nabokov is particularly lucky because his book was not censored in the US but in France of all places. What more could he hope for? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a real truth to that, isn't there? It does. um, Oh, indeed. I mean... Since he was attacked, Salman Rushdie's Satanic Verses, uh, the sales have skyrocketed since his attack. Um, mm. And it's, uh, you know, again, I, I think book bans and fatwas and other attempts to silence artistic voices tend to um, backfire in one way or another. Because um, we're basically saying that banning a book has the opposite effect. It makes it more intriguing that taboo of not being able to get your hands on it. And so Margaret Atwood wrote an article for The Atlantic, and I'm not going to go into depth, but just the title and the subtitle that she's chosen, uh, I think really elucidates this idea. Um, go ahead and ban my book. That's the title. And the subtitle is, to those who seek to stop young people from reading The Handmaid's Tale, good luck with that. It'll only make them want to read it more. Yeah. And um, right. <laughs> and to highlight that point, the banning of books prevents conversations. That's, you know, it's, um, I think it was Heinrich Heinler, a Jewish author. He made a play and he wrote this quote, when you burn books, you then burn people. And this was a huge slogan during the um, Jewish um, book burnings. And I think you are injuring people when you ban books. You're injuring the ability to have cordial conversations and having a different point of view presented to you or to any people that pick up these books and read them. Um, If you are not reading, you are not developing empathy for other people and other people's uh, lived experiences. Yeah, because our our own lived experiences are limited. Um, 100%. It's similar to the idea of people writing outside their lived experience. Um, The, the, you know, there there are multiple questions around that and multiple sensitivities. Uh, But imaginative spaces are where discussions can really begin. 
Uh, and that's something I think everyone could try a little harder to embrace. So I've, I've read Lolita. I've only started the Satanic Verses, alas. But I have read the next book, which is Where's Wally? Can you see that at all? <laughs> I've read this book. I like to think I'm well read. Uh, also known as Where's Waldo yeah. in America. Um, now, obviously, you know, we have high production values on this podcast. You can see uh, the graphic that I've put up. You may not be able to see Wally slash Waldo in this picture. Uh, and it's the nature of these books. I can see a whole bunch of pixels. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's all I've got for you. It's, it's a beach scene. Um, now during the, during the nineties, uh, the where's Wally series was some of the most banned books in America. Uh, which is quite astounding, isn't it? No way. Yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that would be a thing. Um, so, yeah, what is it? The it was in the ALA's uh, top one hundred banned books list. Now, the issue with that particular picture that I showed you. Let me show you a close up. Let's see if you can see this one. Can you see that lady there? Oh yeah, I can definitely see it. A boy is. I can see touched her with, uh, with her the ice cream, shell. and she's topless, isn't oh, she? Ice cream. Very shocking. Free yep. the nipple, as they say. Okay, so that was the problem. A, uh, a, a librarian, I think it was, noticed this this image. It sounds like she was trying to find Waldo and failed and instead found the free nipple. She, yep, she found the nipple <laughs> and the sand with the little dots she interpreted as erect nipples, uh, suggesting some sort of... Um, pleasure uh, uh going on it's a stretch isn't it i mean you look at those where's wally pictures and they are they're very small and i mean i would have said that was a grain of sand not a nipple indentation but definitely she's she's not wearing a top the image also caused problems for another reason let's see if you can see there can you see the other problem I can just see the outline of a male crotch. Yeah, well, it's actually in the top left. You have uh, two men, two gentlemen, uh, different skin colors entwined, seemingly falling over each other. This was seen to suggest a homoerotic scenario, which obviously is you know, deeply offensive, and even more so because of the racial mix. I mean, what are we, what are we telling these young kids uh, here? Um, you know, are we saying that they can mix with other races now? Is this acceptable? What's going on? So, yeah, I mean, you know. Was this in 1990s? This was, uh, I think it was, well, it was in relation to the 87 edition. It was corrected in 94 so it was somewhere between those years um you can't get the uh yeah. the naughty version anymore the i believe that the entangled men remain entangled which is nice that's good 
But the lady now has her bikini top on. So, you know, no children were harmed in the making of this book. But it is, I mean, you know, these these sorts of things. I read an article on this um, uh, in relation to Banned Books Awareness Week, and the author made the point that, well, I'll quote it. So censorship efforts are no longer just a matter of picking words and phrases out of context from these books. Some people are quite literally taking a magnifying glass and trying to find anything of offense to complain about. And I think, yeah, again, I thought this was a wonderful illustration. Uh, you could look at that picture for years and not notice the topless bather. Um, I think it's a, it's a disturbingly homophobic uh impulse to look at at two people uh of different races touching each other you know in an incidental way they've clearly tumbled over each other uh and to to read something homoerotic in that and even if they are indeed partners uh you know even in even in the late 80s early 90s it's quite scandalous i think uh, that someone would suggest that that is objectionable when they are not doing anything that you would typically regard as sexual. So yeah, that's um, there, there are other instances in the Where's Wally uh, collection. There's one where a man is walked in on. He's in a tent. This is in a in a in a camping scene. Um, he clearly doesn't have his pants on, so he's covering himself up. Uh, you can't see anything. Later on, he had underwear inserted, big baggy undies, so that we could see that what he was covering up was his undies, uh, not what goes under them. Uh, so yeah, pretty pretty mindless stuff, isn't it? It's um, it's interesting. We've we just the kids' books alone show it's a blunt instrument, uh, and, and people are you know really pulling out their magnifying glasses to find reasons to ban this terrible, terrible children's book, Where's Wally slash Waldo? Mm. All in the name of protecting the moral virtue of society. And children in particular, yeah. Um, it's quite an insult, I think, to young people, personally. Um, I agree. Yeah, the, the the final two I wanted to do were Ray Bradbury books. I mean, it would be crazy not to talk about Fahrenheit 451 in a bit more detail. Uh, so Fahrenheit 451 uh, refers to the temperature at which uh, book paper catches fire and burns. Um, or at least it did when mm. Ray Bradbury um, asked some scientists about that. The current thinking is that it's roughly between 424 and 475 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a less catchy title. Um, for those of us in the metric world, uh, that's not really a metric thing, is it? That is 230 degrees Celsius. Yeah, yeah, spot on the money, 230 degrees Celsius. And make a good pie and burn a book in your oven. Um so it's a book about book burning. Uh, the main character, uh, Guy Montag, is a fireman. And in this instance, um, firemen start fires and they burn things and they burn books. Um, now, 
the history of this this book is really interesting. Um, so Ballantine Books actually published a version um, of the book called the Bal High Edition, uh, where they took out all the stuff that that was considered to be problematic. Um, yeah, so this was the the Bal High Edition. Um, one of his other books actually was given to uh, high schoolers with little black bars over the words that were not acceptable. But this one was was edited. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? It was edited by the publisher um, for for Ballantine High School um, by Ballantine Books. Is that a coincidence? Uh, and it was called the Bal High Edition. And then basically in 1979, uh, Ray Bradbury found out about this because they didn't ask him. How's that for? And and he basically complained and <gasps> said, "No, no, no." Um. So and then in 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 two thousand and six, at the Conroe Independent School in Texas, a group of uh, parents uh, tried to get the book banned because of its language, and you're going to love this, and its supposed denigration. Of firefighters, the firefighting community. No, you're kidding. Deeply offended. Uh, yeah. Now, um, here's a quote from the Houston Chronicle: "It's just all kinds of filth," said parent Alton Verm. I want to get the book taken out of the class. He hadn't read the book though. Um. Now, can I jump in here? <laughs> yeah. With one of the books I was going to mention, um, and it's a funny reason for its banning as well Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Finally, the book was banned in some places due to its use of language and wordplay. Uh, Carroll was known for his inventive use of language, but some readers and educators have argued that this could be confusing or frustrating for young readers who are still developing their language skills. Yeah, I mean, because it wouldn't help to develop them, would it, right? Um, No. It's absolutely bonkers. Uh, One of the – so Bradbury – I think would have agreed that like, you know, challenging people is important. Um, challenging kids too. Um, he, he also had another book band called the Martian Chronicles. Uh, and the Martian Chronicles is a fix up novel. I don't know if you know what a fix up novel is. It's, uh, it's, it's not no, a term here a lot. It's basically a collection of short stories that have been put together as if they're a novel. Um, now, recently, uh, I was reading a book called They by Kay Dick. That is also a fix-up novel. So it's all set in the same place or in the same narrative context, but often every story features different characters. Every chapter is, is a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, and and The Martian Chronicles is, is really is a collection of short stories because they were published in pulp magazines and so forth. Um, There are reasons to find it problematic in the sense that uh, the book deals with issues of racism, I think, in a 
in a sympathetic way, but perhaps you've got to remember that this book written in the 40s and 50s uh, you know, holds a mirror up to that society, and Bradbury is not, you know, eighty years ahead of his time. So, whilst he is critiquing racism, in some ways his own approach is racist too. His um, treatment of women is also problematic. But again, he, you know, the thing about science fiction, American science fiction is that they're frontier stories. Uh, this was something that Stanislaw Lem found very, very irrit- irritating about American science fiction at that time. So it's these intrepid male explorers, you know, racing out and conquering new lands, and it's a real frontier thing. And the women in those contexts are not treated particularly well. So the Martian Chronicles is very much a satire of those things. And so, yeah, women are are really given a a minority place. And there is a suggestion that the frontier women in this space context will be prostitutes probably, as as many of them were, you know, when the American frontier was, yeah. Um, So, you know, it's, it's, it's a book that will will strike up some some conversations, but it is also, uh, you know, a, a, a satire, and it it deals with the difficulty of looking at oneself. I think objectively, uh, and there's a theme in in uh, Bradbury's writing. So one of the stories in this Martian Chronicles collection is called Usher. And it, it's a it's a um, a nod to Edgar Allan Poe, uh, in the House of Usher, and basically uh, a character builds a series of of traps, a house of death, um, for the moral what is it the moral climate authorities. These are people who um, outlaw any kind of fantasy or escapism. Or fiction, essentially, you know, it's not. It's not good, and so yeah, he builds a hall of horrors using the tra- death traps in the House of Usher, and these uh, Society for the Prevention of Fantasy. These members get lured in, and they all get killed. The moral of that story is that if they'd read Poe, which they banned, they would have known how to overcome these traps. Similarly, mm. uh, at the end of Fahrenheit 451, you know, these characters are all memorizing books and they, that's how the books are going to survive. They're going to memorize them. Similar thing happens in They by, uh, by K. Dick, another great writer, women writer lost to history. Um, at the end of Fahrenheit 451, the leader of this sort of group of exiles talks about the phoenix and how the phoenix dies, is reborn in flames and dies again. It's reborn in flames and dies again. And he's saying that, the, he says that this this um, perpetual movement uh, is very similar to humankind. But we have one great advantage. We can, we can be aware of what has occurred and change the cycle. Um, and that's a really, you know, that's a really important uh, message. And um, 
George uh, Santayana. George Santayana. He has that famous quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Uh, and I think that's that's yeah. very much Ray Bradbury's key theme across his two most famous works. I didn't say they're his two most famous. Um, both books deal with that subject again and again. Um, and the the um, those who cannot remember the past, they're the book burners. Uh, and so, yeah, I think what he's saying, and I, th- I think I think it's so self-evidently true that you know you can't shy away from things that are difficult, dangerous ideas, challenging thoughts. You know, if you have a deep philosophical or religious conviction, it has to be able to sustain some exposure and, and criticism. If it can't, what's it worth? Um, so yeah, I think I think that that's that's what I came away with this week. Uh, is that we need to we need to keep our eyes open, you know, turn the flames down so it's not too bright, keep the eyes open. What would you say your moral of the story yeah, of this I week think, would be? Uh I think banning books deletes the conversation. And that conversation is how we um, relate and experience other people's lived experiences. And that's how we develop empathy. And without empathy, as a society, we will crumble. Um, And I think literature is where it starts. And reading these books is where it starts. Mm. Very wise. Yes. So that's banned books. We've very wise, my years. You, well, you are. I, I mean, I didn't <laughs> say for your years, but yeah. Um, so that's banned books. That was the easy one, wasn't it? The banned books, because uh, that is a mm. much broader thing. Next week, we're going to talk about censorship in literature. It's it's going to be fiery in its own way. It's going to have its pitfalls. It its is. landmines. It's. And it relates to your quote because um, if you forget the past, you're destined to repeat the future. And what we're seeing at the moment is the past being rewritten. So, and all those lessons of the past disappearing. Um, so, yeah, next year it's going to be very interesting. I think so too. Did I say next you year? Say I meant next, next week. It feels like it'll be next year. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we haven't been we haven't been like you know a hundred percent on our on our broadcasting schedule so it might be next year or you know never uh, it will not we, we may be burned burned out of uh, out of uh, circulation who's to say um but yeah i mm. i think next week's going to be a very sensitive and controversial but hopefully thoughtful uh discussion of what is becoming an increasingly difficult situation in the space of books and literature yeah i'm looking forward to next week and um i hope everyone enjoyed this podcast day as much as we did and we'll see you all next week on the pleasure of the text when we talk about our censorship and sensitivity readers and the publishing industry exactly see you later guys see you folks